I don't think I've ever actually like said your last name, Jackie. So is it it's Mar? Yeah, Mar. Mar. I thought I knew that. I was pretty sure, but I just wanted to make sure since I don't think I've actually ever said it. Cause <laughs> yeah, you're just, fine. Because um, you're just Jackie. <laughs> uh, no, I've been told that uh, Johnny Mar of the Smith, former, formerly of the Smiths, had the same spelling, and he changed it to M A R R, probably because no one could pronounce it. <laughs> Because everyone was like Mahar or something yeah, like that. Yeah, exactly. Mar, pro- Mar problems. <laughs> Hashtag Mar problems. <laughs> and if you say it backwards, it's Reham. Reham. Yeah, that's where you go uh, to learn how to appreciate prosciutto. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Wow. See? Golds. Aren't you glad I was vigilant about starting the recording? Your Houston Gray. England skies, cloudy days, colder nights, and your heart's not right. Thought you'd be quite happy there, in that warm New York air, but your heart's not right. But if you sing along with me, do you think you could ever smile again? All right, hello and welcome to Beats, Ryan Types, uh, your favorite podcast about music, food, and computology. I am your host, MRB, and we're here with AQ and live from London, our friend Jackie Marr, who Aaron and I have known for a long time, and we sit around uh, brainstorming about really fun people that we know that we'd love to have on the show, and Jackie's name came up. She recently also left the city um i think around ish the same time that aaron and i did she's in london now um working for the bbc she worked for a long time in new york at the new york times and does a lot of really interesting work on the intersection of journalism and technology and has a cute dog and (laughs) and i understand a new house we thought we'd have you on the show and you uh the song that you were introed into was chosen by jackie england skies by shake shake go so you chose the song tell us tell us why you chose it sure well it's, it's good to be on on the podcast um i chose that song because well you know i moved to london the beginning of the year from New York and it's you know it's kind of similar to New York in many ways but there it's been a cultural adjustment and the song talks not only about you know what, what it says in the title uh, the skies over England which tend to be gray a lot um, but it also makes some references to New York and it's been a nice sort of adjustment song for me and it's also a nice cozy light pop song too cozy and light is good I'm sorry that I stole your moving to England punchline from you there <laughs> no, I should have no. realized that when you told me the name of the song Aaron's gonna yell at me about that <laughs> no it's I okay like, she chose the song with England in it but of course you had to say that she, you know, it's okay. I'm just joking I'm just, how has your adjustment been I mean we there's there's so many interesting things to talk about there we we talk a little bit about displacement uh sometimes and finding new communities and i know that communities are an important thing to you uh since that's kind of how we met you so there's that uh tell us a little bit about what what's been going on with that uh well i can tell you what i was just doing about 10 minutes before uh we started talking i was on my way home from having my dog be interviewed by our new prospective landlords. Uh, So that's a new thing. Um, uh, We're in the process of moving to a different part of London and 
Uh, the process has been a little bit more thorough than it was in America. Um, the process of you know applying for an apartment and it's actually a house. And um, so is this where the jumping through hoops phrase comes from? Did your dog literally have to jump through hoops to to get the to get the apartment? You know, I had no idea what to expect. Um, <laughs> apparently, the the people who own own the house. Um, they had a bad experience with one of those um, people that ruin it for the rest of us, uh, you know, with a pet. And the, it sounded pretty gnarly, actually, and I won't go into all the details right now. But, yeah, they, they, they basically just wanted to meet the dog and make sure that he wasn't like a crazy, um, like, Dogo Argentino or something like that. <laughs> um, and he's not. Uh, he's on Twitter, for, first of all, you know, so how bad could he be, really? <laughs> yeah, he's just a cute dog and... Uh, yeah, we went over there. It's in Hampstead. Kind of reminds me a bit of where I was living in Brooklyn in Fort Greene. Uh, has, you know, really nice restaurants and shops and pretty foodie looking butcher that I haven't gone into yet, but it's on the list. So every every city that I've ever like lived in, in like Berkeley and, and the, the Bay Area, Boston, New York, they've always, and now Kingston too a little bit, like someone has always like made the map of like, here is the Brooklyn neighborhood compared to the this city neighborhood. So, um, or the New York City neighborhood. <laughs> okay, I'm sure it has. Shoreditch, for instance. Sorry, uh, Shoreditch is the Williamsburg of London. I don't know which is officially or whatever the Port <laughs> or Park Slope. I think you know uh, Hampstead might be the the Park Slope or or Fort Greenish. Are there strollers? Area. A lot of strollers and. Uh, Yoga pants, is that the... There's definitely definitely yoga, there's Pilates, there's, you know, some kind of uh, newfangled Pilates yoga hybrid going on. I don't know. Whoa. (laughs) I don't live there yet, so um, I'll have to report back. Well, then, you know, what's going to happen is you're going to want to go there, but then they're going to want to meet your dog. (laughs) (laughs) And that's going to be like a whole thing. Right. So, what are you going to do? Aaron, you're you're in Kingston. I don't think I've talked to you much about that since you moved. How, how is it? I almost moved there once. You did. All, I know we were talking about it on Twitter. It's funny. It's great. Yeah, it's a small town. It's definitely, you know, very different than London or New York. It's a very small town. Like when I say small town, like people have an image of something and it's like really is like a town. Like there's a town, it's a big, it's a pretty big city, but where I live in Uptown is a town and literally I've never, cause I lived in Brooklyn basically my entire life. Like I didn't really know any of my neighbors. Like I knew my neighbors like in the apartment building that I grew up in and whatever, like the neighbor, like literally the person in the door next to me. But like, it's like this weird phenomenon, which I've never experienced in my entire life where I like, if I step out of my house and walk down the street, there is and a guarantee that I will run into someone and like have to stand on the street and talk to them for at least like a couple minutes. Like they it's, say it's, hello and say hello and like you know like have like an actual conversation with people. You know because like I've just met in the past year I've met a ton of people around town and there's like the coffee shop, the butcher, the you know the music venue and the pastry shop. Like and everyone's just like milling about town like very small town vibe and like oh i ran into this guy at the coffee shop and on the way home i also ran into my neighbor who was like pulling in her car and i had to talk to them so there's this that's probably the biggest for me the biggest absolute biggest difference from anywhere i've ever lived and i i I, at first i was like very like uh this is like way too much but i kind of love it now it's kind of really fun it's just 
That you know, sounds nice. Yeah, it is. It's nice. It's nice. It's a very People nice place. People don't do place. that here, at least not so far. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's hard. like when you're, there's just a different, it's like a different mentality. It's like. I don't know how to describe it. It's just like people like in Berkeley, even like when I was living there, like I would run into people and I, I struck would strike up conversations. Everyone was super friendly, but there wasn't like this same feeling of like, everyone is very invested in everyone else's like business, like in a good way. It, it could, it can be like a little nosy sometimes, but it's also very much like, Hey, we're kind of all in this together. Like, let's make this place awesome. And you know, oh, there's like a new store opening there. We should go introduce ourselves to the owners. Like, when does that ever happen anywhere that I've ever lived? It's pretty funny. Mike also moved last year to, to D.C., so it's been a, a big transition for all of us. Right, yeah. Mike, how are you liking D.C.? I like it. I, I, live, in the, I live on the other side of uh, Maryland from the D.C. border, so I live like in the, in the suburbs, uh, ostensibly, but, uh, but like a third of a mile from the D.C. border into Maryland. And so it's nice where I am because you can like walk to stuff, but we have a house and a yard and a lot of space, which is really good because, you know, I have two kids and getting a little bit of space. I try to, and I work from home. Which is hard because you know they're super loud and intense, um, and I always want to and I always want to be around them when when they're around because uh, I'm drawn to them because they're like you know they're your kids little little versions of me and my wife, which is very entertaining. <laughs> the girl got my face and the boy got my wife's face. It's very cute. So anyway, uh, but I really like it. I really like it. It's mellow. I go to New York a lot. Um, on the train like to do work stuff because um, my company is still based in New York but yeah it's cool to get to know a new place we're near a lot of my wife's family which is really nice uh, I can like walk to the metro and go places and it's really it's cool I like it can I ask if you live in the People's Republic of Tacoma Park I do, I do yeah. <laughs> you do I do yeah oh you ever bump into oh, Jake right, Harris oh right because I know your pal your pal lives there Jake Harris yeah yeah yeah. That's right. I was in contact with him a little bit when I first moved down here. I should hit him up now that I live over here. We should. So we should talk about um, why you moved to London, Jackie. I know. I don't know if it was actually explicitly for the job, if the job came first or the the moving came first. But um, I'm I'm pretty interested to hear about like what you're up to these days and um, what kind of things you're working on at the BBC. Yeah. Sure. Absolutely. Um, I first decided that I was going to try moving to London when I was over here for a conference, the Mozilla Festival, towards the end of 2013. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've lived, I grew up in New York City, uh, as you know. Um, I've lived in the Bay Area. I've lived, lived for a brief while in Florida. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you know, I've been back in New York for a few years and wanted to go somewhere else. I, I keep leaving New York and I always, I always come back. Uh, so. Give me a, give me probably about five years. I'll probably be back. That's the plight of a person who's born in New York. I think, is the, <laughs> yeah, you would understand that, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, let's see. Yeah. So I was in London, and I got to thinking, like, oh, maybe, maybe I could live. You know, maybe I could move here. Uh, and uh, we have a London bureau. I was working at the New York Times. The original plan was I was gonna transfer to the, the London Bureau of the New York Times. Um, uh, over the course of that year, it became a little clear that, you know, there was a lot of upheaval, you know, first of all, in the, in the New York Times, uh, which you might have heard about. The editor um, was fired, and my then boss, uh, Aaron Pilhofer, he left uh, to go to London 
oddly enough, <laughs> to go to The Guardian. And there was just a whole lot of uh, changes going on in the newsroom and things that the, basically they were going to have to appoint new people. It, it kind of p- would have postponed my move and would have postponed it so much that I, I decided to explore other opportunities. The reason I wanted to move to London was basically, aside from living outside of America, was I met a guy. And the guy <laughs> is pretty awesome. Uh, his name's Ian. And uh, we tried that transatlantic shuffle for over a year and a half. And uh, thankfully, don't have to do that anymore because that was, that was <laughs> insane. Uh, it makes any time you spend together, whether it's a week or two weeks even, I don't know, it puts so much pressure on everything. Because, oh, let's be casual and go to the movies. But, oh, man, if it's a shitty movie, I'm not going to see him for a few more months, right? So <laughs> this made everything so, so yeah. And, and of course, it's expensive to, you know, to keep flying back and forth. So, yeah, so I ended up getting in touch with this guy, uh, Matt Shearer, who I met at the Mozilla Festival, uh, who's the head of the BBC uh, News Labs, which is a group that I'm working with now at the BBC. And, you know, long story short, I started, they sponsored me for a visa. I had a rocky beginning of the year in which I was waiting for the visa to be approved, hopefully, had to you know, tell my landlord I was moving out, um, had to quit my job, all of this stuff, and had no idea when I was getting on a plane, didn't have a plane ticket because I couldn't leave, right, until they sent me back my passport with the visa, hopefully. And that all worked out and uh, you know, slept on a friend's couch for a couple of weeks and ended up over here. Yeah, that's rough. Yeah, so you, before the, you were working at the New York Times and before that, I think you had been working on, you know, more general, you know, Rails consulting, building app type stuff. But since the New York Times, you've been working on, as Mike was saying, kind of that that edge between journalism and tech and stuff like that. And was that a conscious thing that you were really interested in and then you jumped into because it was something that you were passionate about? Or was it more like, this is just a cool team, which I, I know it was, and there's a lot of awesome people who are there, which either one is an acceptable answer, but I'm, I'm, I'm interested. It was, yeah, no, it was actually both. It was both. Um, I was interested in journalism from, oh uh, gosh, back, back to the days when people would ask me often, what do you want to be when you grew up? You know? um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I worked on my high school's newspaper and yearbook and, um, I guess in nine, 1999 or 2000 or so, I, I found a job at Hearst, which had opened up their, their own interactive studios, um, which was basically you know, exploring the intersection of technology and journalism. And I worked for Esquire. I had a lot of fun working with Esquire like on uh, their drinks database. We, we created this you know, not technically very complicated thing, but for you know, the media at that point, having a searchable database. Oh my gosh, that was kind of crazy. Well, that's classic because that's like all the David Wondrich uh, like drink recipes or exactly. whatever, right? So that's, that's a like a holy grail of cocktail nerds. Indeed, yeah. yeah. It, was, it was a lot of fun. Then uh, uh, I, worked, uh, I worked with the people at Popular Mechanics on some of their kind of wacky recipes like beer can chicken and <laughs> putting it into a similar sort of surgical database. Anyway, um, did a bunch of like sort of interactive stuff with the various uh, Hearst magazines and they ended up shutting it down. Actually, right at the end of 2001, they, it was part of that. I don't know if you remember that, that time period in New York, but there was a, a lot of um, talk about an advertising slump post 9-11. Yeah, that's what they blamed for shutting down the interactive studios. 
maybe it was also too early. I don't know, because it wasn't until maybe 2007, 2008 that Aaron Pillover, my former boss at the New York Times, set up uh, a very similar kind of group in the newsroom there, Interactive News. And when I heard that they were hiring, I jumped at the chance to do it because I had I had tried to make a foray into that world about eight years prior. I was actually involved in a media thing like right before September 11th that like totally fell apart right after September 11th. And then that's why I ended up going to grad school and then ended up like becoming a teacher and all that stuff. So that's that's kind of funny. That's cool that you were like waiting around for this like thing to be invented and then they got invented <laughs> and you're like, I fucking invented that. I'm gonna do, I want that job. <laughs> Jackie, I think a thing that's cool about you is that um, you also build systems and are involved in the details of implementation and operations and the impact that that had and infrastructure and all that stuff. So, because I know I worked on a project with you at the times that involved you doing some like really crazy shit. Um, <laughs> was that the Olympics? Was that what that was for? If, yeah. Uh, ingesting massive amounts of like Olympic data and transforming it. But so where are you at now? Like, do you, are you still like all over that stack? Like, are you like in the, in, getting your hands dirty with implementation and like, or are you closer to the news part of things now or, or what? I've made a conscious effort to move closer to the, to like the more editorial side of the role, but I all, I still do implementation, of course. In fact, just uh, a couple of days ago, I was having to do some, uh, some precious DevOps again. Um, <laughs> and after, so when I was at when I was at the New York Times, um, our our group was started as this almost kind of secretive skunkworks skunkworks team. Uh, don't tell anyone what it is you're doing um, in the newsroom because you know there there really hadn't been people who knew how to write code in a major newsroom before, and so the people would get nervous about it. Uh, that has thankfully very much changed. Uh, wow, that was really quick too, because that, I only joined the New York Times in 2009. Uh, part of the the group's uh, great freedom, even though it had like that sort of skunk works mentality, uh, was uh, also the responsibility of having to maintain all of your own servers. So like, we did things way outside the box. Um, as far as you know, the engineering side of, of that company went, um, you know, which meant that we got to spin up our own servers, which meant we got to spin up our own servers <laughs> and uh, you know maintain them. Get and some which means you had to run Redis. Womp womp. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, if we had gone through official channels to work with something as newfangled as Redis, you know, that would have taken years. So. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, I love technology. I love, um, I love programming. I love, I even love to a certain extent, you know, the systems uh, end of it. I love you know, designing and architecting stuff, but it, it's, it's a lot to do DevOps, maintenance, uh, development, architecture, writing, editorial, et cetera, et cetera, like all in one, in one job. It's a lot to do. So I'm more interested in what technology makes possible for storytelling. I think also like the deadlines were so intense, like with, with new stuff, it's with, I mean, with like interactive agency type work, it's like, okay, this person's having like a marketing event on February 1st. 
we better get stuff ready. So maybe you have to stay up late the night before and like get a bunch of stuff ready. But it's like, okay, the Olympics are happening. You know, they're not going to like push back the date of the Olympics or, you know, the or election. Or presidential election. Yeah. Oh for, my God. For, for, the, for the newsroom. So yeah, that's, that's yeah. a lot. Yeah. The London Olympics um, coverage, that that was probably the most terrifying. When when the results started officially coming in, that might have been the most terrifying moment of my life. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because we had done some Olympics coverage from a like an interactive or data journalism standpoint before. But the thing is, the IOC, right, who controls like all of the Olympics, uh, the committee, and um, they were just building and testing their data format in the run-up to the London Olympics. They had done a test run that they called the Vancouver Winter Olympics, uh, which we were part of. But it was, you know, Winter Olympics are so much smaller than summer, uh, right? They have like, you know, half the number of, of sports. And so you're trying to build things that can parse all this data. And all the data, of, uh, you know, it's, it's in XML. It's in this very weird uh, sort of XML format that's called the Olympic data format, and and they're they're kind of changing it as as you're as you're trying to code stuff to parse it, and <laughs> trying to understand it. They'll change some abbreviation, um, and you have no idea what's going on, and 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 there's just so much stuff going on at the same time. And it, you know, we we my colleague and I flew with the sports desk over to London about four days before the opening ceremonies and we end up staying here for close to a month uh, for the games and we're in this little uh, office in the press building on folding chairs and folding tables right it was like I had carpal tunnel syndrome so bad by the end of that (laughs) but um, yeah all of a sudden like archery starts like doing their qualifications and with that archery event you get a message every time an arrow is is shot with how fast the arrow is going and I don't know where it was made or whatever, who knows? Um, yeah. So it was kind of terrifying because we had never, we didn't have the chance to put our systems through the entire, like, uh, like an entire test Olympics because that data set didn't exist. So we just fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah. And it worked, right? It, you succeeded. It yeah. yeah, it worked. It worked. Yeah. <laughs> That's an important part of the story. That, that is true. That is true. Yeah, it did work. It did work. We had all those results on, on, on the site and we were able to, I think more importantly, we were able to incorporate like the results in near real time with our ongoing coverage. So if you were reading a story that was maybe written yesterday about Michael Phelps or something, you could also see like the results in today's competition. So yeah, that was a lot of, that was fun. And we did use Redis on that. Redis saved our ass on that. <laughs> It will save your ass. It's true. <laughs> so, what's the what kind of what kind of success have you had uh, getting more toward the editorial side of things, and uh, what what interesting editorial types of things have you worked on? You definitely were part of a group of people that kind of helped transform the way that the Times like was able to tell stories um, in a in a pretty meaningful way. But like what. What, what editorial stuff are you like working on directly that's interesting or would you want to work on directly that's interesting to you? Like what I think I know. I, I mean, I know I know some of the answer to like some stuff you've worked on, but I'm curious what, what's got you excited these days? What's interesting to you? What have you been able to work on? Uh, the thing that I'm really excited about now is this. I don't know if it's fair to say it's a relatively new area in journalism. It's it's the the term for it is structured journalism. And I think the term is relatively new. 
Um, but I've been exploring uh, what, first of all, what does that term mean? Um, and what does having a greater structure to the to the, either the way you approach reporting, like the investigative process, or the way you present it. Uh, like what, does, what possibilities does that open up? And it's largely in the realm of explanatory journalism um, as I see it. So I, I've been uh, given a lot of autonomy, which is great at the BBC to basically prototype and interview people and have people uh, try out new tools uh, for doing for doing like the, you know, sort of like the note taking and um, investigations uh, part of a story, like a, maybe a, a several week or a month long sort of investigation. And also then on the flip side, work with some of the people who are covering breaking news events uh, to see how we can get some of the information that, you know, as human beings, we understand when there's a story, right? There's a story and it takes place in one place, in one location or multiple locations, right? We know like there's a story that is about Homs, right, in Syria. And we know that Homs is a city, it's in Syria, that's country. Uh, some of us know where approximately where Syria is, right? And, um, and, you know, if Assad is mentioned in the story, we know that's a person, we know he's the president of Syria. But when you end up most of the time in, in uh, the media, you end up with either a headline, a byline, and the body of the article, or at the BBC, more, more likely, you end up with like a 30-minute current affairs sort of news broadcast or a one-minute news update that will be on like at 8 o'clock at night or something. And that's a video or on the radio, right? Then you have an audio file. And then those files just you know, get put into an archive. And if you want to know, like, okay, give me everything we've ever reported on the Syrians of a war or on every quote from Assad that we've ever at least used in our, in our coverage, it's pretty tough, right? Like, we don't have right now a, a database of all quotes with, you know, attributions, people. You know, what are you going to do? Are you, uh, you going to ask the reporter to, hey, can you, can you go enter all the quotes from this story in this form for our CMS? They're not going to do that. Who wants to do that? That would take too long. Going through like the machine learning sort of approach to how do you detect a quote in text, let alone how do you detect it in audio? Like you have to go through like the whole world of speaker diarization, and detection, all that stuff and speech to text. And it's just unfortunate because what, what it means is that we're not able to leverage our archives, um, which we could do uh, to do better um, you know, like I said before, explanatory journalism, right? When we're covering complex stories, uh, having, like, like the BBC does, this massive archive going back to, you know, the early uh, 1900s of television and radio and just not being able to find stuff in it is really, it's really unfortunate. So what we're looking at with structured journalism is coming up with, I guess I've been explaining it as a journal or editorially curated internal um, knowledge base, sort of like a Wikipedia, only it's dedicated to news, right? Because Wikipedia is, I think it's pretty explicitly not supposed to be about news, breaking news events. It's, you know, it's an encyclopedia. But if you had one of those dedicated to what's going on in the world, like all the people and organizations and places and their relationships to each other and to a story, that would be amazing if we could build that. So that's what we're looking at building now. It's amazing. Yeah. A lot of people have spoken way more eloquently about the future of journalism and news than I could possibly do. But it's really interesting that most of the 
a lot of the conversation have is often about like catching up to the way people consume like video and and audio and like how to modernize like basically what a paper is which is in a lot of people's minds like oh how do you make it interactive how do you make it entertaining almost and or more not just entertaining but add this extra information that you couldn't that you can get the benefit through the web or through like new media that you couldn't get from a physical paper but a lot of people i haven't heard a lot of people talk about it but it seems like people are which is exciting like how do you also take that and transform this massive knowledge that we've accumulated over the past 150 years or more of all everything that's happened basically because new york times has a huge archive too i'm sure the guardian and and bbc do, do as well and there's and all these papers all over the world that have like you know tons of information that's just not accessible because it's just in formats that are just unusable basically like text or audio or just like physical scan you know the, the new york times has all the scans of every page of all their papers right and you can sort of search through it but it's not it's not contextualized like you're talking about there's not the same there's not the same um structure to it which is really fascinating yeah it's it's really interesting and other organizations are are seriously looking at this now um very recently too uh the washington post for instance is it's uh, they just did their first experimental story using what they're calling a knowledge map, which is sort of like what I was describing with like a, this uh, knowledge base, right? Um, they're annotating articles on their site, and the the one that they started with is uh, in a series that they're calling "Confronting the Caliphate" about the Islamic State. Telling the story of the Islamic State and how we got to here is complicated and involves just a lot of information, and you don't want to have to rehash that in every piece you do. And the reader or viewer doesn't necessarily want to have to rehash it with you every time, like, you know, depending. Like, it's hard because there are people who follow the news and are news junkies, kind of like myself, right? They, they've already read or, or, or heard you talk about, like, you know, this is how, you know, these are the, the events that led up to this point, right? Um, but then there are people who, who don't really follow it that much and they tune in like on a, you know, sporadic basis and you want to be able to serve both, both of them. And you also want to be able to serve, you know, get, to, you know, get the information to people where they are, whether that's on their phones or um, on their tablets or their regular computers on their radio or whatnot. So, or on different uh, messaging platforms like WhatsApp and um, yeah. there's a whole, God, it seems like every day there's a new one. Um, <laughs> You know, how do you actually scale that for um, a news organization? You know, like I'm working for a news organization that's massive, right? There's 7,500 journalists employed by the BBC globally, which is huge. I think the New York Times has about 1,100, which is also huge, right? But these are both companies with pretty vast resources compared to many, many uh, smaller news orgs, right? Who don't, who aren't able to throw a bunch of developers at a problem, right? So how do you actually do that in a way that you can scale it and, and also deliver the news to people where they are? I was just realizing that there's this other business concern, not to like, you know, the moral aspect of it and the ethical thing of like having all this news accessible to everyone is super important too. But there's like this business aspect, which is just that, you know, if you're I'm looking at this article about like the Islamic State which happens to me often, like, or not necessarily as long as it's some, some, some thing that I don't know much about, but here's like a breaking news piece about it. Often I'll read that and be like, I want to learn more about this, 
but there's no way to navigate that through the site that I, the new site that I'm on. And usually, what happens is I'll go to Wikipedia, I'll go to you know some other, or just Google and find some of this whole list of things that are everywhere else. Whereas if you had this from this article, take me to this knowledge base of everything else I want to need to know, want or need to know about this. That's like a pretty powerful um, tool for keeping people engaged. No, exactly. And, and also, you know, that's, that's disruptive too. Like if you, if, you know, I know if I'm reading an article and I want to look up, you know, one of the names mentioned, I've never seen this name before. Um, I go, you know, I go over to Google as well and I search for that name and, you know, maybe I'll end up on Wikipedia. Maybe, you know, that, that person hasn't been written about in Wikipedia yet or won't ever be. Um, but yeah, I'll end up like, you know, either going through some random PDFs that I find about this person or I'm on like the UN site with their sanctions, like if it's the Islamic State related at least. I, I probably have forgotten about the article by that point and maybe I wanted to finish it, but yeah, maybe it's in my Insta paper, but my Insta paper is like a never ending chasm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're right though. There is a business case for it as well. Like you want to, you know, get people engaging more with, with your site. Like where I'm working now is, is, man, it's been really interesting because it's, you know, it's the BBC and the BBC is funded, at least in the UK, by a mandatory annual license fee. As far as I know, I don't think we have something like that in America. Um, like you don't have to pay PBS, right? But of course, PBS is much smaller. You know, outside the UK, there's a whole commercial arm of, of the BBC, BBC Worldwide, it's called. Um, and they're the ones who will sell you a DVD box set, right, of Doctor Who. But, you know, within the UK, it's about, I forget, I should know how much this is. It's about 100 and, I feel like it's like 130 pounds a year, which is not that much uh, considering like what you get in return for that, right? You get all of like the drama. Uh, uh, I sound like a shill now. But anyway, <laughs> there's this whole, <laughs> sorry, but there's this whole like royal charter for the BBC, which is also a new one for me. Uh, but part of it says that, you know, the BBC is in the public service and, you know, we're supposed to be, you know, informing the public. And I, I'd also say part of that is, you know, helping the newspaper industry here um, and other news organizations here. Uh, so maybe we, you know, maybe we would want to send people to other, other sites. Um, or maybe we'd want to somehow incorporate that content on our own site. I don't know. Having, you know, just even knowing what's, like, what those uh, different points of contact could be in our coverage is a first step. Is there any relation between that and maybe the organization also contributing to open source as well? Like, is that, has anyone made that connection? I think I've, I know that the Guardian has done a ton of work in, in the open, in open source. And I think I've seen a bunch of from people from the BBC speak at conferences, but I don't know if there's, if you worked on like a structured uh, journalism framework, for example, or a tool to do that, is that something that could potentially be something you would give away or, 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 yeah, lease to other news organizations or whatever it could be. Sure, um, I mean that is that is the plan. Um, that is how we're operating. So we we started working on a platform that could serve as a, a structured, queryable storage of knowledge and news. Yeah, it's early. It's kind of early days on it, but we will be open sourcing it. We actually just started putting together a version one. So I'm hopeful that you know by the end of the year we'll have something that we can open source. Um, we're also um, before before like the code is out there. We've been you know talking uh, with people outside of the BBC 
people in, in the States, you know, for instance, at the New York Times, um, ProPublica, uh, people in, you know, in news orgs in Europe and, and Sub-Saharan Africa as well. Just trying to, you know, there's lots of people looking at various aspects of this problem. It would be great if we could all, all kind of, you know, do something revolutionary and, you know, learn from each other and uh, not have to reinvent the wheel every time. So, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We'll be open sourcing it. There's probably some interesting design details in how you like store this kind of data and query it and all that kind of stuff. So what I remember a while ago, you were playing with some graph database stuff probably for a different project. Is that, are you playing with that kind of like semantic storage kind of stuff now for, for this work as well? Yeah. Um, in fact, uh, I was reading a, a paper that I, that I came across in research on, um, it was amazing actually, this paper. Um, the title was, was almost exactly what I'm trying to build with this project at, at the BBC. It's like, wow, these people did this already. This is amazing. Building a knowledge base by by algorithmically finding, detecting events in, in the news. And it also amazingly was not about the uh, GDELT database. Um, I don't know if you guys have seen that one. It's, it's a global database of events um, that happen. Uh, they're mostly events related to conflict, which if you look at, the, at a newspaper, it's mostly what's in the news, right? Um, uh, that's a big project out of, hmm, I want to say Duke University. But anyway, that's a, that's a big project that is all about trying to use machine learning to comb through thousands of media sources to figure out what's going on in the world. It seems like every paper I find uh, on the topic is, is related to that project, but this paper was an, an independent one. Yeah, so what was interesting about this paper is that they're using uh, graph theory and graph databases to to figure out um, of all these news stories that we, you know, that we think might be about the same topic, how many of them are similar enough or in close enough to be about the same event. That just came up for me today. Um, the BBC has commitment to the semantic web, uh, which I, I, I've never worked someplace that actually had, had gone in for that at, at the scale that the BBC has. You know, they have a triple store, a massive kind of triple store deployment that they call their linked data platform. And so what, what we're looking at, um, at least as far as like the knowledge base aspect of the structured journalism work is very similar in concept to that sort of linked data platform. Thing is, we can't just start throwing a bunch of stuff into our linked data platform because this is the platform that um, journalists around the world are using to tag uh, their articles and stuff when they go into the CMS. And so if we end up putting, you know, kind of development or test data in, in, in there, um, it might not be so great. Um, <laughs> and also, like, we just want to be able to pivot really quickly. So we're, we're, we basically set up our own instance of this. The one that uh, the BBC is using in production is from Ontotext, I believe. I think they just renamed their their product GraphDB uh, from something else. Uh, yeah, so we're looking, we've, we're in the, the kind of, we're in the stage where we're looking at a bunch of different database solutions that we could sort of throw more of our data in to find the relationships between them. So we're looking, you know, we've looked at Neo4j, which is a graph database that's got a nice admin and stuff, but if you want to use that in a production environment, it gets kind of expensive. So I don't know. Yeah, we're, we're exploring some of those, some of their competitors too. But 
Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to stay away from wading, uh, wading deep into the world of XML again, which a lot of these, uh, which a lot of like the sort of triple store semantic web things are, are steeped in. Um, <laughs> I have my fill of that. Cool. Um, I've, uh, I've only really read about graph database stuff. I've never used them much in practice, but, um, it's a really, those ideas are old. Like, uh, you know, since, since some of the first like connections between math and computer science were made by like graph theory people, um, people have been like talking about doing that stuff for a long time. And now that we have like massive computers that can store and index really, really large quantities of data. It's pretty cool the kinds of uh, crazy queries you can do if you set up set up those knowledge bases properly. So talk a little bit about like what the I'm interested. One thing you talked about like so you have this knowledge base. This allows you to uh, think about a story being less as like you know a single like you don't have to tell the whole story every time you want to like add a little more information to the story. So the story is more like this living document and then some kind of interface on top of that, right? So if you're like an expert, maybe you look at it in a certain way. And if you want, if someone wanted to use the knowledge base to provide like an, a broad overview, they would be able to like use it in a, in a different way. Is that, is exactly. that kind of what you're, yeah. right, okay. Yeah, so um, one, of the, one, one of the things we've been working on is, is a concept that we're calling a storyline. Um, so it's a storyline by which we really mean it's a story, but to differentiate it from like one single news story, we call it a storyline. And a storyline is basically just a narrative composed of events, right? That could be events ordered in like their actual like chronological manner or, or events like that we order in a certain way to better tell the story. And then each of those events can, you know, have different people, um, involved in them and their involvements can differ, right? And have co contextual information on them. And then they could also have, you know, geographic locations and those locations serve as backdrops for each event. And those also have contextual information and so on and so forth, like throughout like all the entities that you could think of, like being involved in a news event or series of events. Um, so then with the storyline, what we're finding that we're able to do is, I think if you go to a lot of like the major news um, websites, you can browse by topic. Right? So different pieces of the content will get tagged with a particular topic. And that topic can be, you know, the topic can be a person, like, you know, coverage of like the UK elections will probably have a tag David Cameron, US will have Barack Obama, right, for all these different stories. But what's missing there is, well, how, how is that person related to this, this particular piece of content? Um, and then when you look at those indexes of, you know, here's all the stuff that we've done related to this tag. It's usually like a reverse chronological list. Um, there's a lot of duplication there. There's you know probably multiple different you know stories, what like we would call stories, going on. Uh, with the storyline, we can go beyond that, um, and we can actually have this whole narrative structure in which all of the you know associated work that we've been doing in our coverage is presented in a more coherent way that we can understand. Another thing you touched on is maybe I'm an expert and I know all about this. Um, and so, you know, how, how does, you know, how, how would uh, a news website or app uh, know that? Like maybe that's a preference or maybe it learns that about you. 
it's kind of more fascinating to me to, to think about like what, what you can do to provide context in video format. That's, I, I don't know. I, I, I kind of, you know, arrive at pop-up video. I don't know if you remember that show. <laughs> yeah. And that's where I end, but I know that there's, there are better possibilities out there. Um, you know, basically, you know, there's like, you know, annotation, like whether that's sort of inline, um, like on hover sort of, you know, definitions or, you know, bio, bi biographical information, that kind of stuff, or there's stuff that might show up in the sidebar or wherever. Um, when you're talking about doing it on a phone, it's, you know, it's a different, you know, you don't really have enough space to have a sidebar or something, right? So um, what are some of the ways that we can, we can provide context in that format? Um, but then the other thing I was talking about is this, the idea of a storyline. So how do we string together all of our related coverage um, in a way that we're not rehashing the entire story at the, you know, at the start of each piece, right? Um, and how do we present it, pr present it in a way that either reflects the order in which things actually happened, like a timeline, right? Or um, the order that we think it's, you know, easiest to understand what happened. Like maybe, maybe that starts at the beginning, maybe it starts at the end, I don't know. Um, so that's what we're looking at. Those are like the two main areas. The first thing that came to mind was like the idea that when we learn about history, um, at least in American schools, we often learn about like history in, in like those like timelines with like, like just a line with individual facts that are very, very condensed into like events and this thing happened and this thing happened. But we don't often think about like real time or like the live news or what's happening now in the same way, though, maybe, you know. When just when we only when we look back on it, do we think about that way? But maybe this could affect that same impact or visual impact of like grouping things together in a way that is like understandably like this is an event. We often do that, I think, as as a society, just to like make sense of you know these things that were probably in the moment. No, especially then when there wasn't actual like news the way it is now. Like you know that the effects of something that happened in one place in America happening somewhere else was not, they didn't connect as much as, if you look at it, you know, back in the day, they probably weren't thinking about it necessarily in the same way. But they did have listicles. <laughs> they did have listicles. Yeah, I mean, people, people you know, have been giving um, mostly BuzzFeed, I guess, a lot, a lot of shit about, about that and about, I, I think, Aaron, you mentioned something before about entertainment, entertainment and news and, um, I don't know. I think, I, I don't know. I'm not against people being entertained by the news. And I, I, I think, you know, there, there has to be some kind of aspect that, that you enjoy maybe about it. Like whether it's that you're enjoying, um, learning a bunch of, of fun facts that you can use at, at the cocktail party or whatever. <laughs> um, or, you know, like if you just genuinely want to be a more informed person, I, I, you know, I, I, I think that, you know, what, whether it's like fun quizzes, um, like uh, at my last job, we did that dialect quiz that pe that was the most popular thing the, you know, the New York Times had ever done. Uh, it crashed and burned so many servers. It was insane. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of wanted to drive down to the, the Amazon uh, Colo and where is it? It's like in Virginia, right? Yeah, in Virginia. Virginia. Yeah, yeah. I kind of wanted to drive down and say I'm sorry about that. <laughs> um, but anyway, like that had merit as you know a learning tool, right? Like how do people how do people speak in different parts of America? I, I wish I wish they would um they would go back and uh, expand it for international, but I guess that would be yeah. that would be really complicated. But you know, it's it's also entertaining. It's engaging because you get to share share your like your results with your friends and stuff. You know, and there there's a, a whole 
the whole new sort of world emerging of uh, how do we how do we tell stories in virtual reality, immersive storytelling? Um, then also, how do we use how do we use game engines and uh, the ideas from uh, video games and and such uh, to do storytelling? I, I think it's fun. Yeah, that's fascinating. It'll be really interesting to see, you know, how our children and our grandchildren like learn about the his- history and about current events. It's going to be extremely different from what however we have learned about them i'm sure um as as it was for our our grandparents right but i'm sure there will still be listicles <laughs> seven <laughs> things you didn't know there'll about. still be wow. images of cute things i'm sure like that that will always be on the front page of some 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 news agency <laughs> <laughs> uh, awesome well it was really awesome talking to you jackie um we're really glad we got to catch up and um, awesome to hear about all the things that you're working on. Yeah, it was great. It was great to see you guys again. Um, uh, as you, as you can, uh, as you can tell, um, I guess the people on the recording won't hear this, but it's dark here and um, yeah, I'm getting jealous of all the sunshine I'm seeing on my computer here. Uh, but yeah, it was really good to catch up with you guys. And yeah, thanks, Jackie. We appreciate you uh, sharing, and uh, thanks everyone for tuning in. Follow Jackie on Twitter and learn from her. Uh, check her work out; it's pretty cool. And um, that was a super lame outro. <laughs> made it out, but um, 